Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. My name is David. If we haven't met yet, looking forward to meeting you after the service. Um, Let's come to God's word now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you uh, don't leave us alone, but you give us each other, not only in this congregation and at this time, but all through history, through the ages, you've left a witness that still speaks to us today. Help us to heed it and benefit from it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I grew up in Camden when it was much smaller than it is now on the outskirts of Sydney. And uh, because many people knew my father and my grandfather and my uncles and my aunts and my cousins, uh, my three brothers, it wasn't uncommon for me to walk into the hardware shop or some other clothing shop or something and someone say, you must be a burge. You must be a burge. And I remember one time I was working at Pizza Hut um, as a teenager and this teenage girl came in and started talking to me and I realised she thinks I'm my brother. And I didn't have the heart to tell her and actually I was interested in what she might go on to say. (laughs) But you know, a wonderful thing about becoming a child of God is that we begin to bear our eternal family's resemblance, family traits. Nothing as physical as a face or a birthmark or a a tribal tattoo that holds us together. But according to Hebrews, Christians are those who live by faith in God. That's what marks us out. A family from many ages and all nations who share a God-given, Christ-oriented, persistent, inspiring faith. I don't know if you see yourself that way, but we are the people of faith who love stories of faith. Uh, you know, I think that's what made it disappointing to me. When I picked up my um, previous church I was working in, in, in Walker, there was a church history that was written, a little booklet, but I was really disappointed in the book, and I was trying to get my head around why. When I'd first seen the book, I was excited, thinking, this book's going to tell me about you know, our forefathers who've, who've gone through men and women who've been faithful in the past. Instead, as I opened it up, it was about committee decisions and and log of ministers and elders coming and going, Uh, the brass items in the church and who donated those and where they went and where they were stored at different times. And as I read on, my eyes started glazing over. The author didn't seem to be clear about the centrality of faith for the church. He seemed to just see the church as an interesting cultural uh, grouping a religious gathering in society, a window, a snapshot into 150 years of this town. When the Apostle Paul shares of his life, he points first to the things of faith. In Galatians 6, he points to the scars on his back, scars for being flogged for his faith and his witness to Christ. For I bear on my body the marks of Christ, he says, the stigmata, literally the stigma, that, that sign of Christ. Now, that's more interesting to me than the furniture. What did Paul sit on? I don't know. That's inspiring. He marks, that his marks speak of Christians bearing cross and sacrifices. Christians love stories of faith. And we might find ourselves enjoying and even needing them as a tonic, especially when life is difficult for us, when we're up against it, when our Christian living feels most difficult. Why do I keep serving in this way, these people? 
And what difference does my service make? Who appreciates it? Who would notice if we stopped coming? Serving and even just committing to regularly showing up is a commitment in itself, isn't it? And ties us down. We need a really good counterforce to get through that. And so it's very important to know, DPC, brothers and sisters marked with your family's faith, that your story, DPC's story, our history, our legacy, is being written right now. In 100 years' time, wouldn't it be great if someone writes back to the early 21st century and what God did through this people? Or perhaps grandchildren and great-grandchildren, speaking of their people who've gone before them, who've led them to faith through their family commitment to Jesus. What were those Christians like in the early 21st century? Back in 2021, what was going on? What was their way of life? What did their routines say about them? What were their dreams and ambitions? And how big did those did those dreams and ambitions require God to be? I heard in 2021 that they, 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 they had great elders who were, had a real gospel interest and they decided for the sake of the congregations and the church to organise a dream team, a vision team, to deliberately think about what faith is going to look like in the coming years. I heard about people in that congregation. Some of them were chaplains and scripture teachers I know some of them were praying and caring and giving and serving in extraordinary ways. Some of them in very ordinary ways, but for an extraordinary amount of time. Some were model bosses who cared for their employees. Others were faithful workers ready to speak of Christ in their workplace. Some really focused on raising their kids well to know of Christ, to be young disciples of his. Others didn't have children of their own, but they committed to the youth of the church to see them grow in Christ. Many of DPC's retirees set the pace as disciples and the pastoral investors for the generations watching them, while many of their friends sought leisure and pleasure and escape. This is our time. This is our place. And so, friends, I hope you see how important it is for us to be very deliberate, very conscious of wanting to live and have a good faith story. To have a good question to that, uh, answer to that question, what will our faith look like? What will our life of faith look like? And God, through Hebrews 11, would have us both very determined and very excited about that question. At the end of chapter 10, we're helped by glimpsing what faith looked like for a real congregation in a real time and place. The faith of the church then on your outline from verse 32. This author is also a pastor, and so he's writing to encourage them. Remember those earlier days after you received the light, verse 32, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood uh, side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. And notice, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while... 
He who is coming will come. Just a little while, suffering friends. Hold on. In just a little while. This pastor author can see that their faith hasn't caved in, even under awful persecution. They're part of God's ancient family of faith, after all. And I'd want to echo those sentiments to you again this morning, as a pastor here. I see the evidence in your lives, day after day, week after week, as I keep hearing of what you're doing and how you're living. And I know Karen and Sandy have a similar testimony. But verse 39 But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we belong to those who have faith and are saved. Know who you are. Know whose you are, which tribe you're in. DPC 2021. You don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But you belong to those who have faith and are saved. What will that mean? For us in our time and place? It's a wonderful question, and Hebrews 11 gives us much food for thought, models to follow. Moving now from one church to the men and women through the ages who have lived this out as an example for us. So, point two there the faith of God's people through the ages. And you might like to take this home for the next week and think about the what and the when and the why of their lives of faith. So first the pastor explains what faith looks like in verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. God's people cling with confidence and assurance to God and his promises. God's people know and see things that other people don't know and don't see. We have a saviour off the world's radar. We all pray to an invisible king, your kingdom come. We are advantaged with the knowledge of why we live and how world history ends. Verse 2, this vision and confidence is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. If we can get our heads around Genesis 1 verse 1, then the rest of the Bible takes care of itself in a way. If we can get our heads around Genesis 1 verse 1, then our minds are expanded to cope with the rest of the Bible and its majestic author who explains our very existence. A supremely powerful, absolutely trustworthy, promise-keeping God. No wonder we trust him. Then verse 3 takes us back to Genesis 4. So it moves through Genesis. Um, Genesis is a great foundational book of the Bible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offspring than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Abel's legacy, his testimony, his voice, his example still commends itself to us this morning. Cain laments, and Abel rejoices at the same truth. I think Abel might whisper this to us this morning. God notices what you offer him. God notices what you offer him. And what you offer God reflects your faith. Is that good news or bad news? I hope that's good news. It encourages the saints in chapter 10, doesn't it? God notices the way you persevered through this hardship. Into the dark world of Genesis 5 and 6 comes another ancestor of light. 
someone who knew and trusted God again. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He couldn't be found because God had taken him away. But before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. We don't really know much of how he did that. Continues verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Great encouragement. Christians saved by grace, we can forget that our lives can please God, that our sacrifices are noticed, that he appreciates it. But verse 6 is also a warning to the secular Aussie life that doesn't impress God one bit. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. A life that has no time for God is in trouble. And verse 6, in other ways, in other words, would say, Repent, Sydney, repent. For while we might like to think it, God is not optional. He's not. Verse 7, and we're up now only to Genesis 7, but the lessons are already rich, aren't they? By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder if anyone in the room or online has ever tried to build a massive wooden ark with primitive tools, surrounded by a mocking generation saying, what on earth are you doing? I take it it's one of those tasks that is much easier said than done, to build the ark Noah built. Yet by Noah's actions, we read, by his faith, verse 7, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Are we sensing the importance of faith? Our tribe, our family, operates by faith. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Go, Father Abraham, go. You're on the right track, even though it seems trackless. Verse 9, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Wow. The father of delayed gratification. And Noah, perhaps the grandfather of delayed gratification, building that ark. Arks, long pilgrimages, choosing a nomadic life with God over remaining in an established brick home, a prosperous culture. Noah and Abraham might whisper what faith-filled people say as well. So now, reap later. In just a little while, God will take care of things. Discomfort for God now. His comfort will come soon enough. In just a little while. Strive, give everything you need to give. Take up crosses now to take up a crown later. In just a little while. And what about our faith mother Sarah, verse 11? By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. If we see God as faithful, it makes faith a lot easier, doesn't it? And so, verse 12, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, 
and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Well done, Sarah. You considered God faithful. God gave you that sense, but you held on to it when your life wasn't easy. And look at what your faith resulted in. Sarah might whisper in our ears, DPC, the effects of your faith are far beyond, out of all proportion to your initial acts of faith. God is so kind, the repayment so large. He's the one who gave me faith. He's the one who sustained it, yet here he is recognizing me and using and blessing my little faith. Remember, when it's hard to trust him, that he'll be faithful to you. And so the voices continue, moving to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Unthinkable. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Confusing? What is God doing? I don't know, but I trust him. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. God gave him a son twice. Trusting God means we can expect to act in ways that we would never otherwise do. We'll learn to increasingly act on the basis of what our trustworthy God is able to do. What God could do is going to have an impact on what we do. We're able to be bold because we know he's always got us. We can only fall so far as he holds us in his hands. I wonder how are you to be more like Abraham? Maybe there's something in your mind where you feel there's a good step for Christ you could take for his church, for his kingdom. But you might be afraid to go there for some reason. I would urge you to ask some faith-filled friends. Pray about it. It might be time to step out of feeling secure and into a place where you really need God to show up. You really need to pray. Uh, Ashley changed jobs just a few years ago with the kingdom as her priority. I changed jobs about a year ago or had that process underway with the same priority. Such decisions involve inner turmoil and discomfort and risk and fears and an exchange of the known for the unknown. I wonder if there's a gospel initiative that you're considering. Maybe something you've thought's just too hard. Draw near to God with it. Seek first Christ's kingdom. Humbly hear the voices of faith-filled people who have gone before you. Expect to make decisions that seem absurd to people without faith. As a a pastor, I don't ask around, but I assume a lot of people would think my life is an absurdity or just a waste of a life, complete waste of time. As Christ's disciples, it would be good if people think that of you as well from time to time. I take it they will and do. Unashamedly Christ, boldly Christ, doing things that don't make sense otherwise. And in this timeless body of Christ, this body that God always intended to be his people, 
He writes that even Moses was part of Christ's body in this sense. Verse 25, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's a nice way to describe sin, isn't it? The fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to its reward. What an inspiration. This is who we are, DPC. Those who see the majesty of God and who trade the treasures of Egypt to have him. This is who we are. Chapter 12 then brings this conversation to the New Testament and to the church era, to Christ himself, the chief of our great tribe, the ultimate model of a human trusting God. Therefore, he writes, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders. Reminds me of going for a run in my slippers and dressing gown. I I wouldn't do that if I'm serious about the run. Things that detract or distract or compromise your presence and your availability to Christ and his people. Let us throw off everything that's hindering our good race. And the sin as well that so easily entangles, makes a mess of our lives and our productivity. If you've ever been fishing with young kids, you might have only done it once, but you'll know all too well what easy entanglement looks like. I tried taking three young kids fishing one time. We didn't get close to catching a fish. It's such a poor alternative to real fishing. I mean, it was a nice little activity. We all learnt something. Hindrances, entanglement. I know I've spent far too much time doing what reflects a lack of faith. Spending lots of time in activities that require no faith at all. Christ's service replaced by self-service. Future planning. Eternal things sacrificed for temporary things. I'd love to have a mind more set on things above where Christ is seated. Christ, who is my life to be more single-mindedly his and to have spent less time in the coming years than I have in the past on things that just don't matter. My screens and my senses fill me with things that just don't matter. Look at what we could be doing instead from the end of verse 1. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out, not for people in general, for us. Our God-given race in our time and place. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The master of delayed gratification. The ultimate example of trusting God. It's pioneer and completer. Verse 2, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Scorning its shame, his triumph, mocking mockery. And he sat down, it is finished, at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's a problem. That's a danger. That's what happens. We do grow weary. We do lose heart. We need to be deliberate about looking to Jesus, the one who has gone through things much harder than you and me. He'll get us through it in just a little while. 
Um, I received an email a couple of weeks ago from a couple of Bible college students. They wrote to me a couple of minutes apart, so I think they'd been chatting, an hour before John's gospel lectures were about to begin. Dear Dave, the climate strike is happening today and I'm wanting to attend. Unfortunately, it will mean I miss New Testament. Would I be able to get access to the lecture recordings? Many thanks, Student X. Now, I'm not wanting to make a comment on the climate strike. It could have been anything else. But more about the assumptions behind the request, which come faster and faster, more and more often, I think, year on year, as our culture moves and moves and moves. The email was courteous, it was well-meaning, well-motivated, but seemingly unaware of how we're departing from what I would call a better historical norm. That when my class is on, I just be there. When church gathers, if I can, I be there, I gather. That faith will lead to faithfulness, and that faithfulness is going to mean something and cost something and, and mean no to other things. That if I'm a leader, I'm going to seek with all I can, to be a faithful leader. Today, in our culture, personal preferences are everything. They overwhelm better fruit-producing virtues, like resolve and duty and commitment. Some of those old words. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. That's going to mean some sacrifice, isn't it? Consecration of lifestyle and priorities and choices all bending to this greater purpose. Diligent farmers keeping an eye on their crops. Focused fishermen ever ready to cast off good but lesser things. For we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we breathe the air of our culture. Uh, what it tells us is important. What it tells us is uh, good and evil. What it tells us is a worthy use of our time and our devotion. And we thank you for the witnesses, witnesses who have gone before us, who tell us that putting you first is a very wise thing to do. We do pray that we would be a people of faith. Lead us, Father, to pray big prayers for ourselves individually, for ourselves as families, for ourselves as a congregation, for ourselves as a church family. Lord, will you lead us to big things? Will you increase our prayers? Will you stretch us and make us people we're not yet? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.